Yeah, thank you for tuning in. It's more than a podcast. Inexhaustible episodes, God's vast. Glorify Him as we broadcast the Lord's grace and God's wrath. More serious than a bomb blast. Full disclosure inside the title. No surprises, simply put, guys with Bibles. Yeah. Just some regular reborn reformed cats If it's in the Bible then they're gonna speak on that Cause the scripture is the final word okay. Competing ideas quite absurd Of this you can be quite assured <laughs> yeah. We were lost in the darkness of night immersed in sin But then the, the light, light emerged. emerged It was the Son of God, divine Christ that shines light The word in Genesis that assigned life in hindsight And was revealed through the prophets and apostles We magnify and expound on the power of the gospel Yeah, yeah trip through the Old Testament last time we were together uh, on Yahweh's perspective of worship. Uh, We saw that he alone is God. He gave us the first two commandments to remind his people through all of redemptive history that worship belongs to him alone and that it should be done in the way he prescribes, specifically without using images. So we saw that there were dire consequences for those who obeyed his, who disobeyed his prescriptions before moving to our New Testament distinctives that we're going to talk about today, uh, we have to remember that the forms we discussed the last time we examined this topic have been abrogated in Christ. Well, what do I mean by abrogated? That means Jesus has done away with these old forms, such as the temple worship, the necessity of the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrificial system, etc., because these were types and shadows of Jesus' own ministry. Uh, thus, they were designed to be fulfilled, and once they were fulfilled, They were then left to redemptive history. Hebrews 8, 4 through 7 puts it like this. Uh, Hebrews 8, 4 through 7. Now if he, meaning Christ, were on earth, he would not be priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is... Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So Jesus' work as mediator transforms the worship of his elect people. So no more animal blood is needed to be shed, because Jesus' blood was shed as a once-for-all-time sacrifice. We no longer need to direct prayers toward the temple, as the curtain was split at the moment of Jesus' death. The name of Yahweh dwells in his people through the Holy Spirit, and his physical presence will be with us in the new heavens and the new earth. We no longer have to observe ritual bathing, also, for instance, from the Old Testament. Uh, That is called the mikvah bath, uh, which was done to clean, ritually clean those who were guilty of certain offenses. We no longer have to do that because Jesus has cleansed our sins, and we live a repentant life by faith. So we've seen that Yahweh alone has the authority to make the rules for worship, and we're obliged to follow them joyfully. We've also seen how this has been done poorly in the Old Testament when grace was mediated through these types and shadows. So now we can look at worship in spirit and truth as delivered by Christ, as mediated by him, and empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. So now with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ accomplished perfectly, we behold him and obey his commandments. In Christ, we worship in spirit and in truth. We do this because Christ is the substance, so our worship is ordinary but substantial because it exalts Christ. Uh, The continuity, however, between the old covenant worship and new covenant worship is that same cycle of revelation and response that I mentioned the first time we were together on this topic. According to the Old Testament forms of worship, the people then still received revelation through the reading and study of the Torah, the words of the prophets, the festivals, and their related messages, and the people would then respond in repentance and praise, marked with particular sacrifices as appointed by Yahweh and documented by Moses. That principle of revelation and response follows into New Testament worship. So the spirit of worship remains, but the forms, the Old Testament forms, have passed away. 
So the fact of Jesus' fulfillment of the law is also expounded in Colossians 2, 16 through 19. If you want to turn there, we can go there and take a look at um, an issue. Um, at, at the time, there were issues uh, with Judaizing teachings. Uh, that means that uh, there were people running around telling people they need to observe parts of the Old Testament law in order to be a Christian. So in their mind, in these Judaizers' minds, you have to become a Jew, become law-observant, and then you can become a Christian. So Paul strikes to the heart of that, again, in this fact of Christ has fulfilled the types and shadows of the Old Covenant worship. So we can read here in Colossians 2, 16 through 19. And Paul's going to be, as he does, very upfront about this really important topic. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So not only nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Uh, there are also instances of Jesus himself fulfilling the old forms and pointing their principles to the heart. Um, and, and we'll just have a couple examples of these. Um, we can turn to Matthew now, Matthew 15, 1 through 14. I think this is a good example of Jesus, um, examples of him fulfilling the law and striking down um, men's uh, ideas and devices, like we talked about last time. That's the the phrase from the 1689 Confession. In fact, I think uh, what, the, what the Pharisees do here might be called will worship, which is a term from the Puritans about worship according to your own will. Uh, so Matthew 15, verses 1 through 14. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah say of you, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. When the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Uh, one important thing in that passage is where the Pharisees um, <clears throat> say that Jesus' disciples do not follow the tradition of the elders. In my opinion, in, in the Bible, the, the, the first letters of each of those words should be capitalized because there was an actual document called the Traditions of the Elders. And that was sort of the ruling document of, of practice for the Pharisees. They blatantly flouted the prescriptions of Yahweh in his word and chose to instead ceremonialize the ideas of men in this document. So the issue here about ritual hand-washing, that practice isn't taught anywhere in Scripture, and there's no commandment that tells people you must wash your hands in this particular way that they are accusing the disciples of not doing. So this moralistic lecturing that they're doing is actually biblically unwarranted. They break the commandment of God to impress their rabbis. And don't be mistaken, this tradition is alive and well today in, in Orthodox Judaism. They follow the exact same prescriptions. They've kept it on as their tradition. 
so you could say that they are actually direct descendants of the Pharisees as far as their teaching and tradition go. Um, this kind of worship is as idolatrous as the golden calf or the unauthorized fire of Nadab and Abihu. But Yahweh did not strike down these idolaters. Uh, they are graceful, gracefully called to repentance. Um, and actually rather forcefully here by Jesus, <laughs> calling them blind guides and hypocrites. Um, and he calls them, honor me, honor me with your lips. We have one other example, and we'll actually just turn back a couple pages to Matthew 12, 1 through 8. So we were talking about hand washing there and proper eating according to the traditions. Uh, we're going to look at the issue of the Sabbath here. And this, uh, I think, gets to some of the, the abrogation issue that I was talking about before, because Jesus <clears throat> is taking the principle of the Sabbath, which the Jews had kind of built all these rules around and made it look completely unlike what was intended by God, and Jesus is instead striking all that away and establishing it um, as something better in what it was intended to be. Uh, Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here Jesus is correcting the misuse of the Sabbath. <clears throat> in the Pharisaical tradition, as I said, all sorts of rules have been built on top of the observance of the Sabbath. And actually, harvesting was one of those. So it actually broke the law of man to pick and eat grain for your own hunger on the Sabbath, uh, it, which we would say would be Saturday, you know, on our calendar, the seventh day of the week. But Jesus takes his stand as Lord of the Sabbath. Also note, note carefully here that Jesus doesn't absolutely do away with the Sabbath. He just says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. We should be listening to him when it comes to how we observe Sabbath, not make up our own rules for it. Because after all, it's his rule, he is God, we are not, and he has the right to sovereignly appoint a day of rest for his people. Does all that, does all that make sense? I didn't want to move past this issue of abrogation or fulfilling of the law before we move into the New Testament forms of what we're going to do here in about an hour. Any questions at all at this point? All right. So it's, a, I, it's just important for us to understand that the shift in the forms is not that God had changed his mind about how he likes to be worshipped. In fact, it, actually it's a recognition that Jesus is the true high priest, the final sacrifice, who kept his promise to fulfill the law. So, what are these new, el new covenant elements of worship? What does the church do when we come together on the Lord's Day at the time that we've set aside specifically for that purpose? We, as I said before, we receive revelation and we respond. The regulative principle sends us to the pages of Scripture, particularly the New Testament, <clears throat> to get the elements of how we receive revelation, what we receive, and how we respond. So first, the revelation part. Christians believe that the Bible is the final and authoritative word of God. All the Reformed confessions affirm the canon of Scripture as the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments together. Because the same God who communicated his sovereignty and authority in the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, we can rely on the text of the New Testament to guide our attempts to worship in spirit and truth. And don't listen to the heretics that say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God. It is the same God. He is the same God. So the elements of worship under the regulative principle are all word-based. These elements are, are labeled in a way that should be familiar with us if we've been here for any period of time, and that's called the ordinary means of grace. So that simply means that these actions and practices of worship are ordained by God for our benefit, namely that our faith is encouraged 
and nourished in faithfully doing these things. Now, they're not magic tricks. They're not self-improvement techniques. Actually, far from it, the ordinary means of grace are powerful and beneficial because they're rooted in Scripture, not man's will or devices or creativity. So on the Lord's Day, when we are gathered, we partake in these ordinances together corporately and are also corporately refreshed. So it's important that the forms of worship must not harm the intent or understandability of the elements. Otherwise, we actually detract from the biblical nature of our worship, and we instead run the risk of putting man's ideas and devices in the spotlight rather than the message of Scripture. Uh, Also, the circumstances of our gathering should not detract or overshadow the substance of the elements of worship. The ordinary means of grace are to be communicated clearly and simply with faith that Yahweh will use them to refresh, refresh the hearts of his people. Uh, Paul builds a helpful bridge between the Old Covenant and New Covenant forms in Romans 12.1. You don't have to turn there, it's just one verse, but you can if you want to. <clears throat> but Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And again, that's Romans 12.1. So we don't bring an animal sacrifice But in a way, we still kind of do bring a sacrifice. And what I mean by that is we bring a living sacrifice. We bring our lives before Yahweh. So our spiritual worship, which is also truthful worship, spirit and truth, consists of this. We gather, we bring our lives before him, we lift up his name according to his word, we praise him, we hear his word, we respond. So what are the appointed forms by which we do this? So as I said, all these elements are word-based. So the first one we'll look at is the word preached. The word preached, and that uh, a base text for this would be Acts 2.42, just a part of it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So as evidenced by Peter's sermon only a few sections earlier in Acts, the apostles' teaching was focused on Christ laying out how he fulfilled the messianic prophecies and exhorting them to repent. So Peter preached the word. A good argument could be made, actually, that the book of Hebrews itself is a sermon manuscript. Uh, and that, So if we take that sermon and Peter's, just a little bit earlier in Acts here, that would also lead us to believe that apostolic preaching was expository, not simply topical, as both preachers relied on core texts to bring out the message that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills the law and takes away the sins of his people. So the subject of the sermon should not be left up to the thoughts and devices of men, but the thought of the sermon should come from the text. That's what expository preaching is. And there were also preachers in the Old Testament. Uh, Ecclesiastes, for example, is actually self-attested as words from the preacher, a.k.a. Solomon. The prophets also characterized their words as preaching, more often than not, and really they were. They were expounding the word of God to their hearers the same as now, except they were getting it in real time, and we have the benefit of seeing it on the page. Paul instructs us in Romans 10, 14 through 17, that people must be confronted with the truth of Christ from the scriptures if they're to call on him. We must continue to hear this word, to be exhorted by it as we grow in our Christian life, not only when we're first converted, Paul never shrank from declaring the entire counsel of God. Uh, That's from Acts 20, verse 7. And neither should the preachers called into the pulpit ministry. And I think they should preach expositionally. (laughs) That's my argument. Preaching is at the center of Protestant worship. It's positioned that way, as we can see, kind of where where we place the pulpit. It's at the center. Um, It's positioned that way. It's made apparent by that pulpit being there. And doing that highlights the centrality of the Word of God in the ministry of the church. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is, to me, the core text for the importance of preaching. And we can turn there if you like. It's nice to see it. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2.
I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. <clears throat> as you can see, Paul takes that responsibility very seriously as, he's, as he gives this, um, this charge that he charges him in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. So the whole, the entirety, the power of the kingdom, he's charging Timothy with this. And what is he charging him to do? Preach the word. That's how serious preaching should be in the corporate worship of the church. Our next element is the word read. R-E-A-D. <laughs> We read the word every Lord's Day. It's a very overlooked element of worship in evangelicalism that's drowning in the normative principle. Normative churches make time for an awful lot of things. <clears throat> Greeting times between songs, full-on breaks in the order of the service for coffee or more handshaking, the lighting of candles, the smoking of smoke machines. <laughs> uh -huh. But Yahweh calls us to make use of our worship uh, of, the, of our time in worship, not only with the word preached, but also with the word read. Uh, we'll just flip back quickly here to 1 Timothy 4, <clears throat> Timothy 4.13. This makes uh, that command plain, along with the command to preach and teach. First Timothy 4.13 until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Simple. It's a simple command. The public reading of the Word is expressly commanded and, and very literally commanded by the, by the Apostle here. So it's hard to undersell the benefits of reading Scripture together. We tend to, in our culture, we tend to emphasize the private reading and study of Scripture, <clears throat> which is hugely important. I don't want to downplay that. That's hugely important. On a, on a personal level, but there is something to be said about when we stand here in this church and read a portion of Scripture together, which is usually an entire chapter, uh, which can be long sometimes. But when we do that together, I, for myself at least, I tend to notice things or make considerations uh, about that Scripture that I may not have made in private uh, just by the fact of us reading it together. Um, I would say, I would credit that to the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's a part, a big reason why we should read Scripture aloud together when we gather to worship. Uh, and the, of course, in this passage, there's another aspect to this, which is also the teaching of the Word. So this is accomplished in the sermon, along with exhortation, but also special times of teaching the Word, <clears throat> I think, necessarily come with it. The Word is so crucial that we shouldn't leave just the learning of it to an individual person's ideas or opinions, we must teach sound doctrine in accordance with the scriptures. Okay, our next element then is the word prayed. So prayer falls under the heading of response, if we're talking about revelation and response. So this is probably the most blatant departure from the regulative principle that you'll find in the church today. Very little time is spent in prayer in the average worship service. So not only are the prayers few, but they're also very short and generally not in keeping with sound doctrine. And oftentimes they become repetitive. I found a really great quote um, by Terry Johnson from his book, Reformed Worship, Worship That Is According to Scripture. <clears throat> Here's the quote. The pulpit prayers of Reformed churches should be rich in biblical and theological content. Do we not learn the language of Christian devotion from the Bible? Do we not learn the language of confession and penitence from the Bible? Do we not learn the promises of God to believe and claim in prayer from the Bible? Don't we learn the will of God, the commands of God, and the desires of God for his people, for which we are to plead in prayer, from the Bible? Since these things are so, public prayers should repeat and echo the language of the Bible throughout. This was once widely understood, Matthew Henry and Isaac Watts produced prayer manuals that trained Protestant pastors for generations to pray in the language of Scripture and are still used today. 
I think that's a really great quote um, and something, like I said, that I think is forgotten in a lot of evangelical churches today. We have a treasure trove of not only examples of prayer, but also encouragements and tools for prayer in the pages of Scripture. <clears throat> a couple references would be Romans 12.12, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, and also Ephesians 6.18-20. We can turn to Ephesians 6 if you like. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. This is a passage from the, um, or a section from the Armor of God passage. And this is actually the, the tail end, so we won't go through the whole list of the, of the Armor of God, but we're going to zero in on one particular uh, section at the end. So this is Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Actually, let, we'll, start at, we'll start at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, <clears throat> and also for me, that the, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So notice here that not only does Paul instruct us to pray at all times, but this is connected to the whole armor of God, especially the weapon involved in that armor, the sword of the Spirit, the Word. All the parts of the armor are rooted in prayer. Paul especially highlights praying in supplication here as well, <clears throat> which I think is an important part of corporate prayer, but certainly not the entirety of what we pray for when we're together. So we are praying for other people. We just did so um, before, before we started the study this morning. But of course, that's not all that we do. In our own order of service, if you look in the bulletin, we have prayers of repentance. We have assurance of pardon. We have prayers of thanksgiving. And all are important and have a place in corporate worship. Jesus' own utterance at the cleansing of the temple is also an important marker of the importance of prayer to corporate worship. In Matthew 21, 13, Jesus says to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So actually, this is a reference to Jeremiah 7, 11, which says almost the exact same thing. Uh, the prophet was also concerned with reforming the worship of ancient Israel, as well as uh, adding on many idolatrous practices. Um, the, the church, or the Judaism at the time, uh, had ceased praying. Um, so not only had they ceased praying, but they had started increasing their idolatry as well. They, they had stopped worshiping God the way he had prescribed and began worshiping in the way that they preferred to worship. So the money changers and the sellers that Jesus is talking to in the temple uh, had, had focused on the sacrificial part of the system and all their noise and commotion had actually distracted people from true worship of Yahweh. May that not be the case in the church. Another reference on prayer, which is actually quite interesting, is Revelation 8, verses 3 and 4. We don't have to turn to it, um, but you can write it down if you like. Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 show us that the prayers of the saints are actually a factor in the throne room worship before the face of God. The smoke of the angel's incense rises with the prayers of the saints in the holiest place in the universe. That's an immensely important means of grace in our individual lives and in our corporate worship. And I confess, it's, it's one of those that I struggle with the most, and I'm sure I'm probably not alone. The elders of the local congregation should pray in the worship service with carefully studied and heartfelt words in spirit and truth, not merely reading off prescribed prayers uh, that were written, off, written out by other people in other times. And that actually is a practice that the Puritans themselves especially hated about uh, using the Book of Common Prayer in worship. Instead, we should, uh, in our churches, uh, deliver what I would call studied free prayer. And what do I mean by that? Meaning that the person, the elder, saying the prayer should be praying in his words, but according to Scripture. So this would be 
uh, an elder who has studied in what Scripture says, um, how prayers are delivered in the Bible, that we pray in the spirit of Scripture, uh, but with our own words, so that it is not just rote repetition of what somebody else has said. So I know I've, I think that kind of prayer is done in this church, and I know I've been personally helped by the public prayers at Logansville, so I thank you for that. Uh, the next is the word sung. So we should sing the word. Some theologians have actually included singing under the banner of prayer within the worship service, which I think is actually kind of interesting. There are some similarities between singing and prayer. First, like prayer, singing is a response to revelation. So it's an expression from the heart to our God uh, for repentance, that we praise him, we confess our sins, we adore him, all those good things. After all, uh, these two practices of singing and prayer went together while Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts 16.25. So we see explicitly that they were singing and praying while they were in prison. Second, corporate singing bolsters our hearts when we sing words that are in accordance with sound doctrine. So Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, instructs us to sing <clears throat> psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. That's Ephesians 5.19. Another reference, uh, Colossians 3.16, has great application for corporate worship. And it actually shows the effect of singing together. So Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So note here that the words are connected with the word of Christ, uh, that the singers must agree with it and proclaim its truth and its promises. So this is one reason I think that it's smart for the songs that are sung on a given Lord's Day to be matched with the theme of the sermon. The words of the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs will already be admonishing and teaching our hearts. So if you think of it as an appetizer that complements the meal that's shortly to be delivered in the sermon. So I would actually call this a cyclical arrangement. So as we sing songs in accordance with sound doctrine, we make the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then, as the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we are led to sing and glorify him. And so that cycle continues. Now, historically, the church has had an on-again, off-again relationship with corporate singing. There truly was no corporate singing in the Roman Catholic Church for a long time. The only singing was done by the choir, and the congregation never sang. And Martin Luther really began the large push toward corporate singing in the early years of the Protestant Reformation. He actually wrote and published hymns in the common language so that even people in remote villages could sing together in worship, so they could understand, which is so important, to understand and remember what they were singing, and then their souls to be refreshed. I know personally when we were locked down for a period of time and we're doing the sermon-only streaming services, I found that the thing I missed most was the singing. I think there really is something special about the church coming together to confess in various songs written over a large swath of time that Jesus Christ is Lord. And doing that in song, I think, is uh, something really special. The word sing is found 133 times in the Bible. Uh, anybody want to take a wild guess as to what book it might occur the most in? <laughs> yeah, ding, gold star. <laughs> It's from the Psalms, the covenant songbook. Psalm 98.1 says, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The application of singing has been a, a bit uh, controversial uh, over the history of the church, and it really, it's especially controversial today. <clears throat> We're all aware of uh, worship wars that end up splitting congregations needlessly, one group wants to sing hymns, the other group wants to sing contemporary music. Um, I've, I'm a bit of a fuddy-duddy, so I think there's plenty of good reasons to reject most of contemporary worship music. The most popularly known contemporary music comes from very problematic, if not entirely heretical, megachurches as a means of marketing. The words of many of them 
certainly don't meet the standard of worship in spirit and truth, especially the truth part. And there are, there, there's too many issues to name. But I would say a lot of these songs suffer from a low Christology, poor ecclesiology, sentimentalism, and other detractions from the purpose of corporate singing. Thankfully, actually, there are groups now that make theologically rigorous contemporary music that could be used in regulative churches, so good on them. Uh, while the, the style of music is not regularly, is not actually commanded in Scripture, uh, so some regulative churches actually have disagreed or diverged uh, over time as to how to present uh, the, the word sung. So some churches sing only metrical psalms, and they do that a cappella, which is a fine conviction. You know, I don't, wanna, I don't want to uh, fault anybody uh, that chooses that or has that as a conviction. But then other congregations like us sing hymns, ancient and modern, in a metrical psalm here and there, with fitting accompaniment to accentuate the themes and the words, uh, and also to keep the congregation on time and on pitch. Uh, it's awfully nice for our joyful noise to be pleasant in our ears as well as Yahweh's, so I'm usually very thankful for a piano. <laughs> I'm a big fan of instruments in worship. And I think we have examples of worship in the Old Testament outside of the ceremonial laws that show that covenant Israel uses instruments. Um, in Nehemiah 12, 27, I'll read it briefly. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they brought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, <clears throat> harps, and lyres. I'd say our piano counts as a reasonable harp. Jesus and the disciples sing a hymn at the Last Supper in Matthew 26.30. Now, this is going to get a little nerdy, so just bear with me. The word for psalm uh, is either psalmos in Greek or tehillim in Hebrew. But neither of those words are used in this verse to describe the song that Jesus and the disciples are singing. But a different word, humneo, which would be the root for the word hymn, H-Y-M-N. So I would say it's actually reasonable to say that the spiritual song that they're singing at the Last Supper is not necessarily the words of a psalm. So these things together leads me to think that Exclusive psalmody or singing psalms only in church is not necessarily prescribed, but it can still be done, and it, that's all right. All right, the next. This is, uh, this is exciting. This is the word seen and tasted. This category concerns what uh, particular Baptists call the ordinances of the church. This is the drama of the gospel that's put on display at the proper time. So we'll think about it. Let's think about it like this. Uh, the earlier elements we've talked about have all been focused on hearing and speaking. That's it. It's hearing and speaking. These elements, and I'm talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, are focused on taste, touch. Um, so we don't need a drama team or randomly perform skits on a Sunday morning to fill up the worship hour, as is done in the seeker-sensitive churches. We have enough drama in these ordinances right here. Um, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are visible representations of the truth we experience in the redeemed life. To borrow from St. Augustine, they are visible words, and we do well when we observe them properly at the proper times. So unlike the ordinary means of grace that we discussed earlier, <clears throat> which can be used in public worship and private worship, these are particularly to be done among the gathered church, not privately, and by duly appointed officers and ministers of the church. Okay, we're Baptists, so baptism is to be performed on believers who have given a profession of faith in Christ, and not on passive infants, which the most plain explanation of this comes from the Great Commission, where baptism necessarily follows the making of disciples. <clears throat> I want to, I'll, I'll quote the 1689 Confession here, chapter 29, paragraph 1. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him the remission of sins and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So I hope you can see the gospel drama in there 
When we witness someone baptized, we are watching him or her identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of his or her Savior in both word and deed, in spirit and truth. Similarly, the next chapter of the Confession has helpful words rooted in Scripture about the right application of the Lord's Supper. The Supper was instituted by Christ on the night he was betrayed and is to be, quote, observed in the churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, a confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits thereof, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other, which I think is such a great, concise explanation. I have nothing to add on that. So I will, uh, let's, I'll quote here 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 16 which sort of lays out the elements of this ordinance. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So we are to link the bread and the juice, in our case, with the body and blood of Christ, because he did at the Last Supper. Now the 1689 Confession also calls us to see this ordinance differently from the papists who believe in the transubstantiation doctrine. So the confession says that that we see it as, quote, a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once and for all, so that the popish sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. Because let's remember, transubstantiation is the belief that when 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 the priest lifts up the bread, and says the blessing, it becomes literally the body of Christ. So we don't believe that at all. But we do believe that the power of Christ is, is there as we participate, as we eat and drink, that the, the grace of Christ is being applied to us, our, our faith is being refreshed. While not all churches observe the Lord's table every Lord's Day like we do, all the regulative churches hold this truth, that salvation is through Christ alone, And the reminder inherent in this ordinance is to remind us of what he has already accomplished on our behalf and to proclaim our faith in him. This ordinance is wholly unlike the Mass. It is not a sacrifice. It's a joyous reminder that in Christ it is finished and there is now no condemnation for us. His body was broken and his blood was spilled for us. So the substance of these elements are unchanged when we convert them from regular use to holy use in this ordinance. It's still bread. It's still juice. But their power is in the spiritual truth they represent. So that's why it's important that we receive both the bread and the cup. And in the past, uh, Roman Catholics actually refused to give the cup to congregants. Instead, they only got the bread and the priest would drink because, uh, because the wine became the literal blood of Christ and it would be a sin to waste even a drop of that blood if it were to be spilled on the floor or something like that. But it's, it's incredibly important that we have both and we understand the importance of both the bread and the cup. The word is obviously very important here as well, and that's why Dana reads from 1 Corinthians 11 before every administration of the Lord's Supper. And I think those words are very familiar to us if we've been here because we hear them every week. Okay, so there are a few, just a, a couple other or, uh, elements of worship that I want to uh, touch on here, and then we're going to go just to some brief uh, application and summary. Uh, if you're looking in, in your bulletin, you see uh, that we have the apostolic greeting, the call to worship, and the benediction. These kind of fall under the word red uh, banner, and they serve some important uses. The apostolic greeting is actually found at the start of nearly every New Testament letter, usually something to the effect of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those letters were intended to be read during worship, so I would say it's fitting to use those particular words as a way to begin the worship service. It's also a very concise way to remind the congregation that the believers who are gathered here possess grace and peace, and that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So I would say that's a very good greeting. What follows then in our order of worship is the call to worship. So this week it's Psalm 106, verses 1 and three, one through 3 a passage that extols the steadfast love of Yahweh, the impressive power of his deeds, and the blessings to those to whom he's called himself, or whom he's called to himself. 
a call to worship is like the sounding of the gavel in the courtroom that says the court is in session. So when we are being ushered out of the world and into the meeting of the ecclesia, we're called to look to God together and to praise him. Because, think, and we think about this, we're already, as Ephesians 2 says, we're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ so that um, as we worship here, worship occurs in the throne room of God itself, which is uh, an awesome reality, that what we do here isn't just here for us, our worship is in the throne room of God as well. And then the benediction, which comes at the end of the service, uh, we can see that it's kind of a bookend to the apostolic greeting. They both convey blessings to the congregation, and again, they're both uh, scriptural citations. Now, my personal favorite benediction is the uh, ironic blessing in Numbers 6, 24 through 26, which is the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So good. Um, This blessing was actually meant to be said at the ordination of Old Testament priests, but it is fitting for us in Christ uh, because every believer is part of a holy priesthood and a royal nation. That's 1 Peter 2.9. Then we have the offering. The giving of financial offerings is part of corporate worship in many Reformed churches, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 2. So in 1 Corinthians 16.1 and 2, <clears throat> Paul instructs the church to set aside money on the first day of the week, which we know is the Lord's Day, and then Paul would come himself and collect it when he arrived at their meeting. So that means they were bringing their financial offerings to their corporate worship and then gathering it while they were themselves gathered. So today, while we're not waiting on Paul to come pick up our collection, (laughs) but uh, it's still fitting that we bring those offerings uh, to church, gather those funds during the service, and put those funds to use for the benefit of the kingdom of God. All right, so in the few minutes we have left, I have four benefits of the regulative principle. And in true Baptist fashion, they all begin with the same letter. First benefit of the regulative principle is that it is portable. So because the regulative principle is focused on doing what Scripture, uh, doing only what Scripture has commanded, it can be held up in any culture in any region of the world. So it can be, it is portable. It can go from culture to culture and and be uh, observed just the same way. After all, the scriptures came to us from a very different cultural context uh, to our own, yet we're able to effectively use the regulative principle in our worship here. The normative principle can't do that, since it's so often predicated on what particular people, what particular cultures want to do, so it becomes very hyper-focused on what individual regions consider important in worship. Scriptural worship transcends the desires and opinions of men, and so anywhere the scriptures go, the regulative principle goes. Second, it is practical. No big budgets are needed to observe regulative worship. You need a Bible, and you need the elements of communion, and that's really about it. This can be done in a secret underground church in China or in an American megachurch. The inherent practicality of the regulative principle frees the congregation to simplify its worship and not spend money and waste time on elaborate schemes. Third, it's proper. Regulative worship can be done decently and in order, and that's actually made explicit in 1 Corinthians 14.40. Uh, elsewhere, in Colossians 2.5, Paul's commending the congregation for their good order and firmness in the faith. The regulative principle does not permit chaotic worship. The elements are meant to be focused, and the message to be understood, and in being understood, they refresh the heart and stoke the religious affections of the believers in attendance, to go a little Puritan there for you. And then slightly connected to that, the the final point is that the regulative principle is poignant. Nothing cuts to the heart quite like Scripture. Every time we see crowds being preached to in the New Testament, their souls are affected positively and they repent of their sins. If we cover over the plain and straightforward preaching of the word, we run the risk of the message not hitting home. Regulative worship lays nothing on top of the plain and obvious presentation and application of the word of God to the heart of the believer. And the word does not return to the Lord empty. So this is what the Puritans would call experiential preaching, which would be to know the truth of Scripture by experience and not just by book learning.
The Puritans, and I would argue any good Reformed preacher, preaches to the heart and not just the mind. Uh, okay, I have one, one final quote and a couple thoughts. Uh, this is from Thomas Watson. If God was so exact and curious about the place of worship, how exact will he be about the matter of his worship? Surely here, everything must be according to the pattern prescribed in his word. So by removing the temptation to order worship according to our own ideas and devices, we remove the dominion of human opinion from the corporate worship of the church. Under the normative principle, churches are running to scratch itching ears, not knowing that what you attract people with is what you attract them to. If they're only darkening the door of your meeting house for a rocking band, watered-down feel-good preaching, or the warm blanket of nostalgia with no exhortation, the leaders will have to keep that going in order to maintain the numbers they seek. Traditional churches are just as in danger of this as the postmodern NAR churches that pump out the world's popular worship songs. If the church operates how it does out of a comfortable tradition instead of a rigorous devotion to biblically-backed worship, it will lead people astray. The regulative principle limits our natural tendency toward idolatry by calling us to the highest standard of worship, the positive word of the Holy One. We do well when we worship in accordance with the word, in spirit and in truth. Any questions? All right. Thank you all very much for, for listening and considering, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the clarity and um, benefit of the word to us. I pray now that as we go uh, to corporate worship here very soon, uh, that we will listen attentively, that we will hear the revelation that's presented to us from your word. I pray that we would respond well in heartfelt ways, uh, in song and in prayer, and I pray that you would bless the time of fellowship that we spend, that in all these things, uh, that our aim would be to glorify you alone, not ourselves, not our own ideas, not our own desires, but that we would see only you this morning, and that that posture, that that mindset that we that is instilled in us when we worship together, that that will follow us through the week and that strong witness will go out from this church into the world. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.